morning. Um, we're changing the order up just slightly. I don't want to alarm any of you. You might have think, thought we forgot something, but we didn't actually forget anything. Um, the order in which we do things, the traditions we have, the number of songs, whether we stand or we sit, uh, whether we do the sermon before the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Supper before the sermon, uh, we have a lot of flexibility, I think, in that. And uh, today, I hope it becomes apparent while I ask to preach the sermon before we share the Lord's Supper this morning, because um, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I think, I think it's hard to overstate the importance of what we do in our communion together. And uh, it's something we share every week, and we go through it so regularly. If we are not careful, those things can become commonplace, and we don't hold it in the spirit that we should hold it. Why are all these kids leaving for my sermon all the time? <laughs> so last week, as part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul addressed a distinction in the worship of the church there, an issue that centered around married women praying and prophesying without continuing to wear a symbol of their marriage covenant, either a head covering or a hairstyle that they had. And it was one more issue of of elitist behavior in the church that was couched under an insistence on personal rights and freedoms without recognizing necessarily the waves that they're causing. Waves of discouragement, waves of division, elevating various issues above bringing glory to God. So in our text today, Paul addresses elitist behavior that had even made its way into the sharing of the Lord's Supper an issue that is so divisive and harmful that the judgment of God had broken out against individuals in this church as a way to discipline them and bring them to repentance. So we've seen this theme played out over and over again in 1 Corinthians, a kind of individualism or exclusivism or elitism that was really attacking the unity of the church so we found this expressed in the kind of factions and team choosing that they were doing. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, etc. It was expressed through their uh, tolerance of sexual immorality. Um, a, 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 a son has relations with his father's wife and you were proud. We went through all of those issues related to sexual immorality. And then this elitism expressed in having special knowledge, a knowledge that Paul says it puffs up rather than builds up. And it expressed itself in some with special knowledge, eating, at the pagan, eating meat at the pagan sacrifices in the pagan temples in a way that would scandalize brothers and sisters who were freshly out of a pagan lifestyle. So it was expressed in married women casting, a sign, this, uh, casting aside the sign of their marriage when praying and prophesying in the church. Uh, 
as a way to make their statement of, I'm free in Christ. It's the, even that freedom comes, supersedes my marriage. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. That covenant of marriage is still in effect while you are alive. And then elitism expressed today in the rich not waiting for the poor to share in the Lord's Supper. And then we'll even see that played out in chapter 12 and 14 with uh, elitism, uh, a pride that comes in regard to who had what spiritual gifts. Oh, you can't prophesy? I'm so sorry for you. You, you don't have the ability to speak in tongues? Maybe you'll get there someday, by God's grace. These are common themes of dysfunction in the Corinthian church that we see over and over again. Personal rights and freedoms over consideration for others in the community. A blindness to the needs and desires of others around them. Making value judgments based on very worldly criteria and pride based on knowledge, gifts, and talents. And I would say that wherever pride goes, division always follows. And now as we are about to read, pride had even found its way into the Lord's Supper, an institution established around the greatest act of humility anywhere for all time. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That approval is not who has what gifts. That approval is those who are not being judged and those who are being judged because of the way they're sinning. So in the first part of chapter 11, uh, 11 verse 2, Paul said, I praise you for holding to the traditions. And now in sharp contrast, when it comes to the way that they're sharing the Lord's Supper together, twice Paul says, I have no praise for you in the way that you're doing this. The memorial meant to unify has been perverted to the point that it is now dividing and causing more harm than good. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Rich people... Christians who had means in this church were going ahead with their own special meal while poorer working class people, by the time that they were arriving, there was little or no Lord's Supper left. So one goes hungry, the other gets drunk. I think that's hyperbole that Paul is using to make his point. Maybe it was happening, literally, I don't know. So, but in essence, the wealth and freedom of some had resulted in the shame of others. 
again in the Lord's Supper was being played out, the narrative on display for all cultures everywhere of the story between the haves and the have-nots, by a disparity between the rich and the poor had become obvious in an institution centered in humility. Uh, Keep in mind that most churches at this time, they gathered in large houses of uh, believers who had a little bit more means, possibly the houses of Stephanus or Chloe or Gaius, among others, were being used to host the church in Corinth. And typical of houses in this time of individuals who had a little bit more means, there would be a more intimate dining area Uh, that would be connected to a larger atrium uh, that could accommodate more guests potentially. But typically, the host would be in that more intimate dining area. And the closer you were to the host of the meal, the better the food and drink you would receive. Does that make sense? So the the closer you are to the head of the table and the most honored spots, you're going to get the best of the best. The further you are from that, oh, I'm struggling sorry, we ran out of the, whatever, shrimp cocktails. Filet mignon's gone. Sorry about that, you steak lovers. So those who were wealthier, they had greater freedom in their schedules of when they could meet, and so they would begin this Lord's Supper earlier, which sometimes, like the Passover meal, this love feast or this Lord's Supper at that time, it would uh, the bread and the cup would be, uh, uh, the, the bread and the cup of blessing, it would be a part of the context of a larger meal. So you can just see this scene of those who were servants or slaves or who had less means, had to run their own business, whatever it was. They didn't have the same freedom of schedule that other people had. And so they could show up late It had to be later in the day, and they would show up and find that the best seats were already taken, that the best food had already been eaten. And so functionally, those who were the poorest, they were on the periphery of what was happening in the Lord's Supper. Status or status was generally an important factor in Roman dying, dining, dying. In Roman dining. And that was expressed in several different ways. Where you were seated, the kind of food that you got, the freedom of schedule that would allow you to eat earlier, just the fact that you had servants to serve your meals for you was a statement that they were making. (coughs) In a Roman household, Sometimes the rich would eat the best quality food, and those who were of a lower social standing, they'd be served different food. A father would get the best, the one who was the kind of patron of that household, and then down the pecking order. The kids wouldn't necessarily get the same food as the parents. The servants wouldn't get the same food as uh, those leading that household. So in Corinth, the very meal that was meant to be a great unifier of God's people had been perverted to the point that it now displayed distinction between 
who has and who has not. Can you see how this would be offensive to God? They forgot whose name was on this meal. So Paul goes on now to remind them. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, if there is true remembrance taking place, then in the moment of communion, necessarily all other issues fall to the wayside. All other distinctions go away when we share the communion together. In that moment of memorial of bread and cup, there is no division among us. In this place, we all come equally in need. At this table, we all come equally hungry. There is no us and them in the Lord's Supper. There's only Jesus among us giving himself to us. The Lord's Supper, at its very core, it displays the generosity of our God. And you just think about our humble little celebration. Week after week, month after month, year after year, the Lord is giving himself to us over and over and over and over and over again. In this remembrance, Jesus He is among us in a special way, giving himself to us over and over again. In this remembrance, Jesus walks among us, giving us to one another, giving us to each other over and over and over again. There is no more deserving among us. There is no one who can approach this table by right. At this table, there's only grace to be received. And so by its very nature, the Lord's Supper is one of the most significant things that we can do as a church to build each other up as a body. By its very nature, the Lord's Supper, it does bring unity to us as a community. So it has to be special. And and think of it, don't let communion just be a rip and sip event. 
Don't throw the empty cup into the trash like you're shooting baskets. Thud, 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 thud. It's special. This memorial means something. This is what Paul says it means. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, to fix what is broken in each one of us, blood had to be spilled. A sacrifice had to be made and a death had to take place. So whenever you take bread and the cup of this memorial table, you acknowledge your status as a sinner. We collectively, as a church, simultaneously, when we share together, we own up to our neediness and our brokenness when we take those elements. In the supper, I own that the price for my life was the death of Jesus himself. In the supper, when you put bread and cup, that little bit of juice, when you put that inside of your body, when you take that into yourself, you accept his life given for you. And I'm not making an argument for consubstantiation or transubstantiation. I'm talking about the generosity of the heart of our God. And in that act, you accept His generosity to you. In this remembrance, your death sentence is being swallowed by Jesus' own life. I need to also say a word about how the Lord's Supper is rooted in the Jewish Passover to help provide more perspective in what we're talking about this morning from 1 Corinthians. Listen how these words from Exodus 12, when the Passover festival and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when they were first initiated as a remembrance for God's people, something that they do in remembrance of God's mighty acts. See if you can hear the echoes of the Lord's Supper in these words all the way back to Exodus. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. <coughs> For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast, and on the first day remove the yeast from your houses. On the first day hold a sacred assembly, and, one, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food and to celebrate and to eat. That is all you may do. Eat and celebrate. Celebrate and eat. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Is that not what we do at this table? In the Passover meal, there was a cup a cup of blessing, and this cup was a remembrance 
of a sacrificial lamb's blood that was spilled and smeared on the doorposts of Israelite houses in Egypt. So that when the destroying angel came, bringing the justice and judgment of God, that angel saw that blood and it passed over that house. And they escaped judgment. Now in the Lord's Supper, the blood of the sacrifice, the cup that we remember, is the blood Jesus spilled himself. And similarly, similarly, the blood of Jesus, it saves us from the justice and judgment of God. The justice and judgment we deserve because of our sin. The blood of, Je- the blood of Jesus, who is God, saves us from the justice and judgment of God, who is Jesus. In the Passover meal, they broke bread and dipped it in bitter herbs. And as part of the memorial, the Jews could say, he brought us from bondage to freedom. When we take this little piece of cracker bread, is it not our way of remembering the ways that Jesus brings us from bondage to freedom? In Exodus 12, 14, God says, The Passover day shall be a memorial for you. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus announces his divinity when he takes the bread and takes the cup at the Passover meal and now says, Do this in remembrance of me. It's hard to overstate the symbolism, the richness, and the beauty of what we do in the Lord's Supper together. And we need to remind ourselves of these things over and over and over again. Because sometimes with familiarity comes complacency. And when we become complacent, we tend to become flippant and careless. Careless with things that God takes very serious. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. How many of you examine yourselves before you take the Lord's Supper? How many of you have taken the Lord's Supper just kind of going through the motions and not giving it much thought at all? There's a couple of us. The rest of you are all liars. What does Paul mean when he says discerning the body? What does that mean to discern the body? I think it means this actual body, the sacrifice of Jesus himself. But I think discerning the body also points us to a consideration of the ways that Christ's body is represented in the community of the church. He is our head. 
We are a diverse group made up of many parts. He'll use this analogy in 1 Corinthians. See, in Corinth, the rich Christians who had eaten without regard for their poor brothers and sisters, they had already missed the point of what this meal represents. To discern something, doesn't it mean that you recognize its significance? When a meal becomes the Lord's Supper, it's not just any meal anymore. To discern the body means that we think about all that Jesus has done for us and continues to do. To discern the body means we recognize that we are a community and very likely there are people who are in this room chosen by God that if it were left up to me, I might not have given them an invitation letter to this special meal. Who are the people here that bother you? Who are the people who make your skin crawl? Who are the people you are avoiding? Who are the people who are so, their lives are so messy, I don't even know what to say to them. Who are the people who are so judgy and self-righteous that I just can't even listen to a word out of their mouth? You have that person in mind? When you take of this table, that is also your acceptance of that person as well. Discerning the body means that when you partake, you are connected to every other person in this room who partakes. The Lord, the Lord is so generous in the invitations that he hands out to this table. And the expense of this meal, it's all on him. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Here's the politically incorrect part of the sermon, that God would dare to judge us for our behavior. The abuse of the Lord's Supper in Corinth, in Corinth was so egregious that God's judgment had broken out against individuals of that church. The judgment was recognized in sickness, in weakness, in death of some of the wealthy Christians in Corinth who were disregarding their brothers and sisters in such a shameful way in what they were doing in the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. See, this judgment is not a, the final judgment unto death or life. This is a judgment meant to lead God's people to a place of repentance to save them from final judgment. There's no way to, uh, for me to really sugarcoat this. God was actively moving against these rich Christians for what they were doing. 
And most of us don't like the idea of a God who can move in judgment against us when we disregard his commands and when we sin against him. What can I say? He's God. And that is his prerogative. Because he is God. And here's where I might lose a few of you, but I'm going to say this anyway. The older I get, the more and more I see God's judgment in my life, the more and more now I know there's pain that I have to go through and they're not easy circumstances, the more and more I see those judgments as his grace to help me. Grace to help me do what I would not choose for myself. Grace to move me in a direction I would not move on my own. Grace to bring me to greater health and healing than I would get otherwise by the way I've been living or the things I've been clinging to and refuse to let go of. I think that because God is gracious, I think sometimes he poisons or sours the circumstances in our life in order to get our attention. I don't want to take this too far. And I don't know, and, and we can't know for sure unless the Holy Spirit directly reveals these things to us and we discern that. Sudden series of financial hits. Just a, a feeling. Why can't I get traction in my life? Maybe you can't get your life organized the way you think it should be organized. Your life is not going the way you think it should be going. Can't find a job. Can't keep a job. Why do I have this drama in my workplace? Why do I have this drama in relationships with people who I love? Why is there this sudden illness that is derailing my entire lifestyle and imposing new physical limitations on me. I wrote this before I knew Thomas was going to be here. <laughs> oh, good, bro. I'm not saying that all of these things are judgment. And I'm not saying that all of these difficult things, they re you can trace that trail of to a certain specific sin. I just know that wherever you are and whatever you're going through, God works for the good of those who love him. And eventually, it might not be now, but there will be a day comes for each of us that things get so hard, it's going to make you squeal. Eventually, you're going to get broken enough. You're going to get anxious enough. You're going to get angry enough. You're going to get depressed enough. You're going to get stressed enough. You're going to get restless enough that you're going to cry out. And my prayer is that on that day you cry out to the Lord.
That's my hope for myself as well. My prayer is that we always continue to find ways to humble ourselves and come back to the Lord in repentance and trust. Come back to Christ, to cling to Him all over again. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. I just love, I would love to know what those further directions were. I'd love to be able to pick Paul's brain, all of that. But he gives us so much treasure to think about. I love it. This is Paul's fix for them to avoid judgment in what they're doing. The fix isn't eat at home before you come. I mean, that's, that's the solution. But the fix that Paul is talking about I think it's humility. I think it's humility because a humble person considers how their actions affects another. Does this table does this table humble you? Do you let it have that power in your life or do you resist it? See, this memorial meal that we share, it is capable of humbling a proud person. And for those who already have humility, the Lord's Supper will bring you to greater humility. This memorial in the hands of the Holy Spirit will always move you toward Christ-likeness and becoming more like Jesus. Rob, you can come up. So Rob's going to sing a song and then Jonathan's going to come give our communion thought for us. Of all the things that we do in worship, the Lord's Supper, by the very nature of what it represents, is our greatest reminder of the love of God. And I think it is also a symbol of the greatest hope of unity that we have as a body and as a community. That's why our tradition here in this place is we when we gather on the first day of the week, it is to share of this Lord's Supper. I've had friends from other church traditions, and they said, uh, you Christian church and you Church of Christ people, when you share the Lord's Supper every week like you do, it loses its special meaning and it becomes commonplace. He said, you Church of Christers, you do turbo communion. You just rip right through it. There is that danger, and sometimes that is true. 
But when it comes down to it, why do we do this every week? I would say simply, it's too important not to. To God be the glory. Let's uh, stand and sing together. For those who are in the cars, song number 238.